Welcome back to Converge for Change, the business of social justice podcast. We are kicking off season two. It is 2021, y'all, and we are kicking off in high gear. We are excited to share this space with you to tell stories, educate, motivate, and move. Join me, your host, Takima Robinson, every week for real conversations as we pull back the curtain on social justice and philanthropy in America. Hi, everybody out there. Thank you all for joining us. We're going to get started in a minute. We're letting some folks join. Thank you all for making time to be here with me and Miss Latasha Brown. Excited to get into this conversation and really catch up with the sister and figure out what she's been doing and where she's going from here. So we'll give folks a few more minutes to join and then we'll get started with the conversation. Latasha Brown is an award-winning visionary thought leader, institution builder, cultural activist, artist, and connector. She is a nationally recognized go-to expert in Black voting rights and voter suppression, Black women's empowerment, and philanthropy. Ms. Brown sees her voice as the nexus between the civil rights movement, the Black power movement, and Black Lives Matter. Bridging the philanthropy world to the grassroots community, traditional politics to grassroots politics, and practitioners to the scholarship of movement building. Latasha is the co-founder of Black Voters Matter, Black Voters Matter Fund, and Black Voters Matter Capacity Building Institute. These initiatives are designed to boost Black voter registration and turnout, as well as increase power in marginalized, predominantly Black communities. Latasha is also the visionary founder and co-anchor of a regional network called the Southern Black Girls and Women's Consortium. This is a 100 million 10-year initiative to invest in organizations that serve Black women and girls. The goal of the consortium is to create a new approach to philanthropy by allowing every component of the program, inception to execution, to be created by Black girls and women in the South. Ms. Brown is also the 2020 Hauser Leader at the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School, the 2020 Leader in Practice at Harvard Kennedy School's Women in Public Policy Program, and a 2020-2021 American Democracy Fellow at the Charles Warren Center at Harvard. All right, Latasha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I know you have been on every single platform all the time. So I really, really, really deeply appreciate you for making time for um, for our podcast. I really, really appreciate you. I know, you know, your time is a gift. And so I'm really, really appreciative that you made time um, to be here. And I hope this is a little bit of a different interview, um, really more of an intimate conversation with you, a catching up with you, a seeing how you are doing um, and really hearing from you as well, kind of what your vision is from here and sharing with us what you learned along the way. Like we are here to be students of, your your wisdom and your experience and also really sit at your feet and hear about your vision. Mm, thank so, you, sister. I, let me say this. If there's anywhere and anybody I want to be in conversation with you with, it would be you, right? <laughs> you know, so those other platforms, they serve their purpose. Um, uh, but really being able to um, you know, be in conversation with a comrade and a colleague and a sister. Um, and someone who I admire and a part of this work uh, means a lot. Because I do think that part of, you know, what is going to bring real transformative change is when we link up, when the tribe links up and that, you know, we're engaged with each other. So thank you. Thank you for who you are and thank you who you have been for me. 
Oh, thank you. All right, good. All right. So I want to just to kind of take as a step back to step forward, although a lot of folks in the audience right now are friends and family. I do want to, because this is going to also air on the podcast, uh, maybe um, have you give us a little bit more of your background. So we, many folks know you now as the co-founder of Black Voters Matter and Black Voters Matter Fund um, and a you fellow at Harvard University and a news commentator at this point. But can you kind of walk us through the journey of Latasha Brown? Talk more about that developmental work that led you to Black Voters Matter before we jump into the conversation about Black Voters, mm -hmm. Black Voters Matter. And the reason why is what we're really trying to uncover with the show is the journey and the process mm -hmm. to demystify it for folks who want to do this work, who are in this work, who need encouragement on the front line, and also for folks who, again, think that this work is magical. They need to understand they're human beings, and there's lots of work that goes into creating a Latasha Brown. So mm -hmm. can you take us back so we can go forward? <laughs> oh, freedom. Whoa, freedom, whoa, freedom over me, over me. And before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. And so I know people are probably saying, what does that song have to do with the making of Latasha, everything. All of it. Up in um, a, a portion of my life, the first 12 years uh, in Mobile, Alabama. And my great, 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 grand, great, 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 great grandmother was actually purchased um, at, by my great, great, great grand uncle. Um, um, on the on the on, on the shores, right out of Mobile, just thirty minutes from my home, and was taken to the Black Belt of Alabama in an area that now is called Molet Bend. Um, my grandfather, my my family grew up, so we were really centered in what was actually an era called Cahaba, Alabama, which was actually the first capital of the Confederacy. So just to wow. give you an idea of where, um, and so all of what that means with it, right? It wasn't by accident that that was the first capital um, of, of the Confederacy. In addition to that, you know, part of the reason why when we're talking about the Black Belt, the Black Belt as a region goes up from North Carolina all the way over to the Delta, but the Black Belt of Alabama that at one point, just in that little area of the Black Belt, one third of cotton production for the world came out of that region. Wow. So one, of the, one of the areas, you know, it's really interesting. Um, I'm saying this because all of this is part of the shaping of who I am. Uh -huh. You know, you know. At one point, I was researching my ancestry, and my grand my my grandfather was a product of a um he was mixed. He was product a product of an of an Irish man um, who owned land and a um and a black woman um who had they lived together as husband and wife and had eleven children together. But what was interesting is as I was looking at my family's history. Um, and I was looking at, you know, at one point I went down a tree, the family tree, and I was looking at at one point um, a family member who was basically my grandfather's great, great, my grandfather's great grandmother, which okay. be, whatever she is for me, was the wealthiest woman in Dallas County. And so I'm sitting here thinking, like, how is it? that that would be the case, but we know exactly how that was what, what was the case, right? And I'm quite sure I didn't even have to go any further. And I was thinking about this dichotomy of how there were those who um, 
um, even in my grandfather's, um, uh, once my grandfather's family, his father died, basically their white cousins took all of the, all of the land that he had given his children. And so they, my grandfather at a advanced age, close in his fifties, had to start all over instead of being a farmer and move down to Mobile um, okay. a job as a janitor on a, uh, on a ship. So I know everybody was like, what does that have to do with who I am? It has everything to do. And I'm raising, I'm raising all of those nuanced pieces of, around the history because it talks about the nuanced complication of what happens, um, what has happened to our people that fundamentally, um, my family lost wealth. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have an inheritance or receive an inheritance for my family as I should have, that I was shaped as a product of people who, just started over several times. Right. I'm a product of right. people who literally um, made a life out of farming and taking care, you know, taking care of themselves. But I wanted to sing that song because out of that, growing up, the once I turned 12, I actually wound up moving to Selma and kind of being rooted in Selma, which was the you know, the birth birthplace in many ways of the, the voting rights movement and very instrumental in the civil rights movement, I would hear these stories and I would learn, I was kind of saturated. I was saturated in the history of my people, but I mean, like really in the history of my people, I grew up where it all began, where most folks don't know. I grew up, you know, where the soil was still damp from the blood of my ancestors. Right. And, you know, something about that was a part of the shaping, but, you know, a, as I got older, you know, like everybody else, my family wanted didn't want me to be an activist. My family wanted me to go to college. They were real clear. You need to go to college, get you a job with some good benefits and get and marry you a good man and have some babies. That's what you're supposed to do. And be right. a good Christian. That's it. Right. Keep it <laughs> safe. Keep it safe. Right. And so in many ways, I was like, OK, you know, um, I do none of the stuff they told me to do, though. But, you know. <laughs> part of in that in, in that journey of I really understood I mean at one point I was like I'm gonna go to school and be a corporate lawyer but there's something in me that had always bothered me of why no matter where I went in the south when I, the railroad tracks on one side of railroad tracks uh -huh. the, the homes look one way and nobody could explain it to me I, I I just couldn't understand it was like why were the railroad tracks magical like what made right. the, the railroad tracks so magical? Right. And so it was that looking at and witnessing kind of this 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 major inequity, kind of hearing and being saturated in the stories of my own family and what was taken from them, um, understanding kind of the civil rights. There was something in me that always that wanted a sense of justice for my people. And uh -huh. so I don't I had been an organizer probably um, a year or two before I actually knew that's what you called it, you know. Right, exactly. They put a name to it. But yes, this was what you were doing. It was what I was doing. And so in Selma, I actually got recruited. It was interesting. I'm a avid reader. Um, not as much as I used to be, but I'm an avid reader. And I um was reading the before the Mayflower. And at this point, I was like really obsessed with black literature and black history. And I was working at a clothing store. I was working um, for an Asian family at a clothing store and they have these platforms and I would sit on the platform and I would read these books. And because I would be there all day, um, I, people, my customers would walk in and they would ask me about what are you reading? And so I would go into this. I, I would basically give a big book review. And right. so 
it got to the point where the customers would always ask me when they would come in, what are you reading? And mm-hmm. so that became kind of like my soapbox. So one day I read before them, I swear this is how I got into activism. <laughs> one day I was at work on my soapbox um, about before the Mayflower. I mean, I like it, the, the book had, um, the, had blown my mind. And so I was just dropping it. I was just like sharing it. <laughs> and before you knew it, there were like five customers in the store. They were centered around listening to me talk about this book. Now I'm supposed to be selling clothes, right? <laughs> talk about this book. And there was a sister that walked in who didn't say anything, who waited in line until I got, once they got their stuff and I got them out of line. And I was like, I'm sorry. I was like, I'm, they, they're used to me with this. And, and as I'm ringing her up, she gave me a card. She's from Ohio with, a, or, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, Florida from a place, uh, organization called the Oasis Institute. And she said, um, you know, you should come. I We're doing an event. We're doing some work with public housing in um, on Friday. And you should come on Friday and speak to, to young folks. Like you really have a gift to speak. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what are you talking about? Because at this point, I'm like, I, this talk about what? What about talk about them about? And she was like, oh, you can just share what you just shared. And um, I and on that mm-hmm. Friday, it was interesting. Um, on that Friday, I went and it was at a, a one of the housing communities, and it was a gym full of folks. And I was and I written this speech. I stayed up and wrote this speech on that Thursday. And I mean, like I put a whole lot of effort in this. <laughs> you had an outline, you had an outline. Yeah. Like, like I never met, a, done a speech like that, right? Even when I was in college, my, 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 my papers was just like, here my paper, I'm just trying to get this grade. I wasn't thinking about like the speech, right? And so I had, uh, what was interesting is that I had taken so much time to write this speech and I, I'll never forget it. And I was standing up in the gym you know, getting ready to share the speech. And I looked at the students and the kids and I was like, they don't want to hear this speech. Mm-hmm. They want to hear me. And I literally started my speech. Um, my first public speech in, as a, I guess, as on my path of organizer, I took the speech and I tore it up in front of them. I was like, y'all, I have my speech. I worked really hard on it and I just tore it up and the kids went crazy. They loved it. Right. <laughs> um, and then I, then I, then I, then I did my talk. But I felt free. I felt liberated. I felt I knew the things that I had on the speech. And in some ways, I guess it's funny. In some ways, I still do that. I still write down my thoughts so I can kind of clear what it is I want to say. But I don't read from a speech, right? Like I, like I say what is on my spirit to come up, mm-hmm. and it's worked well for me over the years. And so that was part of like. Um, and then right after that, they immediately offered me a part-time job um, organizing the resident council. Uh, the the and I did volunteer to the resident councils uh, in the housing communities. And so that's when I started organizing. They start training me, and I started doing a lot of. Uh, I started doing organizing, um, and it was powerful because I was already doing some stuff through church. I've always been active. Right. I was active in high school, but it gave me a vehicle to really be able to organize in some different ways. And that was it. I was done. I was like, <laughs> all right. You was hooked. I was hooked. And I never worked with a, uh, uh, I never worked outside of an organization that did social justice again, ever. 
Wow. Wow. Well, see, that's beautiful. So I think what you taught us too was about stepping into your gift. That's right. And the part about ripping up the paper for me, what I take away from it is when we're in our gift and we're authentic and completely open to being used, right? Then it just flows as opposed to the other piece of it. That's a really beautiful story. Heard you speak numerous times. You always liked, you know, light it up, burn the house down. Um, and so that's that's a really how old were you at that time? I was really young. I was twenty. I was twenty two. I was twenty two. I was twenty two. Wow. Yeah, I was twenty two, and I only remember I was twenty two because I was pregnant. And so what what was um, it's so interesting. Like even right now, I'm getting emotional thinking about it. You know, I was in my last year in college. And I got pregnant and I was so embarrassed. Um, I felt so shame. Um, I was um, uh, my family. I I was my family always had a lot of faith in me. I don't know what it was, but I couldn't do like my my my. You know, there were other members in my family that could do what I thought was crazy, stupid stuff. I couldn't do it like their expert. They was like, no, you got to do right. So. Right. And it was and I felt it was unfair. But I understand now I felt like I'm like, why y'all? Why I can't do it? You know, (laughs) kids go out and drink. They was like, nope, you can't go. I was like, well, I can't go. Right. And um, but I remember they had so much faith in me. And it's funny, you know, because I was I was 22 years old and I was pregnant and I wasn't married because I my family, everybody gets married. It don't matter matter who you are. You can be wealthy and it it don't matter. You can be in jail. Y'all going to get married. Right. (laughs) Um, So they're really they're a big married family, everybody. And so I was unmarried. And here I am my last year in college. And I was so embarrassed. And I remember um, calling my um, calling my grandmother. I'm a grandmother's baby. Calling my grandmother in Mobile and telling her I was pregnant. I was so scared because what everybody else thought about me, I kind of care, but not really. But what my grandmama thought about me, really crushed me. I'm a grandma's girl too, so I, oh, right. I totally understand. You understand, but yeah. my, when I called my grandmother, and I don't think I've actually told this story. I don't know if I've ever told this story before. Um, when I called my grandmother, she said, um, well, baby, you grown, and we're going to have us another little baby to love. Uh-huh. And it changed my life. Like at that moment, I knew that my family fully accepted me. For, you know, and then my I called my aunt who I was really scared to call after that. And she was like, come home, come home so you can have support. And so, you know, it was funny. I came home. I quit. I quit my job. Oh, I was just it was just a mess. I came home. Um, I'm embarrassed. I had a job. I left school and I was seven months pregnant. I always been a worker, y'all. I was seven seven months, seven and a half months pregnant. And I was like, I can't do this. Let's stay at the house. I'm going to get me a job. I went and got me a job. I was seven and a half months pregnant. When it got me a job, even if the, and not only did I go get a job as a, at, I was assistant manager at this clothing store, the same clothing store. Okay. But um, within a week, I had gotten a promotion to the district manager. They were like, you the hardest working. I remember my, my manager was this, this um, a career man named Chain. And he was like, you work hard, hard work. You work hard, hard work, right? <laughs> and so I had, so 
So it was something in me, you know, even that, and I even remember folks looking at me like, don't nobody hire nobody seven and a half months pregnant. I was like, I'm gonna give me a job. Like I had me a job, literally, I, I got me a job first interview, but the, <laughs> the, the, the truth of the next week and promote you know <laughs> I, I raised that because um, I had so much, and it, it is funny, I'm speaking to it now. I don't think I've ever even spoken about it in this way before. I had so much shame you know, in it and that, and then I had this opportunity, I got this job and then I had all, I mean, I, I, I was supported. Like, I, I mean, I could read a book and my job, like I was like, you know, I was really supported because I was a hard worker and I had a whole lot of leeway that, that um the family had given me in terms of running the store. But when I started working part-time, I was working part-time with the Oasis, this, this other Institute, you know, it's interesting that work actually affirmed me. Like mm. it, it, it was, it was, it, it also, I realized I had something to offer. Mm. Like that one moment in time, I don't care who you are. I don't care how smart you are. Cause I always thought I was smart. Right. I always thought I could figure stuff out. I always thought I was hard working, but I didn't always think I was valued. Mm. So this was one of those periods in my life that I did not, I had a, I had a moment that I didn't feel um, I wondered whether I would, I was valuable. Yeah. Right. And so, um, even though everything, I had a supportive family, all of that, it was just my own little transition moment. Right. I experiencing through that. And I remember something about the work being able to connect with folks and talk to people about their visions for their communities and really go and sit up in, um, the homes of folk in the, um, in the housing community and ask them what they thought about and they share stories. So even for me, part of organizing, and, and I think we as organizers, they have to shift and see it that way. It should be a, it, it should be an exchange. Right. If you are open to it. Like if you are organizing, you come around and you know everything and you telling me how wrong I am and you going to educate me, you ain't got it. You're not no real organizer. What you are is an egomaniac that you, have, you think that people are supposed to just adhere to whatever you think. If you're an organizer, you go expecting to mm. not only share and give information, but to learn. Right? And so my organizing journey was shaped by that. I literally learned early on, um, and I got hazed, I have a story how I got hazed, but early on how to listen to people. And right. so the process of even organizing helped me as a single mother, not knowing what I was gonna do, feel valuable. Um, it helped me really feel a sense of power. And then when I would go and talk to other people and see how they would react, um, also made me feel that way. So wow. Latasha, say hi to the babies. August and Kingston are watching. Hey, August and Kingston. <laughs> I'm coming to see y'all. <laughs> so and you know, you you lean right into the next question because I wanted to ask you what organizing has taught you, right? Like, and that was actually really profound because it sent, it seemed like it coincided with you stepping into your own power to the, be on the journey to help other folks find their power. So I love to hear the story about learning to listen, but also reflecting more on what is organizing taught you? What have you learned on the journey as an organizer? You know, as an organizer, I think there's a couple of things. I think part of it, I, I don't want to underestimate the value of listening. Good organizers know how to listen. I can already tell organizers that can't get anybody to follow them, I already know, they don't listen. I, I mean, I can already tell you. You can come in, I was like, you didn't listen, did you? Right? Because people are telling you. That ain't what they said. That ain't what they said. People will tell you they won't, 
or they will tell you literally it's what people said and what they didn't say. I can go to a meeting, people not say anything. I know what they said, right? <laughs> you know, and so part of, I think, what organizing taught me, even as I even shared that story, that that the power of organizing is actually operating in agency. That yeah. when we are op actually operating in our agency, right, and really being able to connect with other folks and having that moment that that's part of um, one of the values and the benefits of organizing. You know, I think I don't I don't like to to I can I can give the skills of the technical way that you organize one, two, three. But to me, that's almost like I can or, you know, you can organize cows. You can right. organize ducks. That ain't the kind of organizing I'm talking about. Transformational organizing is very different than treating people like they're a number. Right. And so you can one, I think, is you can gather people. And you can organize people. When you're talking about communities, you can actually have an event. There are a whole bunch of people calling themselves organizers that are really event planners. That what you do is you have events and you are able to get people to come to your events. But organizing to me is that you're actually organizing people for a particular goal and purpose. Right. And that you're able to tap into them, their agency um, and your sense of agency for that you're actually rallying them around a particular belief and goal to move them towards a collective action. And so for me, what organizing, um, that some of the pieces that I think that organizing has taught me is really a, around the power of collect the power of the collective. Right. You know, it's, it's one thing for me to want something my, for myself, but Mm -hmm. Time and time again, I got the receipts that when people work together collectively, um, that there's power in that. The other thing that um, I recognize is that, you know, organized power is real power. You know, that even when you're organizing, you're not giving anybody anything is already there. You're organizing the power that's already there. I always like to talk about how, you know, um, um, Thomas Edison you know, did not create, really create, he didn't create energy or electricity. What or he created, right. right. What he did is he knew that there was energy. There was something that was already out there. There was an energy currents that were already out there. He created a conduit that actually could take that energy and direct it. That's all organizing is. Organizing is knowing that the energy and the current is already out there, that you have to create the conduit that you target that energy in a way that is electricity and you turn the flip and the switch and the light come on, bam. There, come on, master class. Come on, master class. Organized. <laughs> Come on, masterclass. So all y'all out there, and I, you know, this is the family. You know, I see everybody showing up in the chat. This is a master class. You don't just turn this straight up into Harvard Kennedy School <laughs> 101. Um, let's get this together. Because again, it, it is the collective, right? It's the individual work that we need to do to step into our own individual power. And then in the collective, we got to learn some things about ourselves and about one another, right? To figure out how the collective works and direct that energy um, into that conduit to make it happen. I want to hear the listening story. I want to hear the story. I well, let me tell you, I'm going to tell you the quick story of how I got hazed, how I learned. Yes, I want to hear it. I want to hear no, it. So, and it's so funny. I'm, I'm, I, I cannot, oh, Lord Jesus, I can't think of this sister's name. And it's been bothering me because I can't. 
you don't know how well I know her. And for some reason, I cannot think of her name. I'm just going to say Miss Sarah because I can't think of her, I can't remember her name. But so there was a housing area. There's a public um, housing community in Selma called Rangedale, Rangedale Annex. And so everybody told me that I had to go to Miss Sarah's house. Like if you want to organize and get the rest of the residents, we were trying to organize the residents council in, 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 um, in that area, in that annex. You got to go to Miss Sarah. Miss Sarah can get it done. And so I would go to Miss Sarah. I would have my little notebook. I had my notebook. I would be organized because I'm trying to impress Miss Sarah. So I have my notebook and my pen and I would go to Miss Sarah's house and I would get there and she would say, come on in. So I would come in. She would always, you want something to eat? Whatever she was eating. I was like, no, ma'am. And she would give me some lemonade. She would have some lemonade or some real, 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 real sweet tea. So sweet that at some point I was like, I can't do this. I'm going to have to go. <laughs> she was a in this. <laughs> this is just too much. Right. And you tell me you got diabetes. I understand. This is too much. But anyway, um, I would go and sit. But she was obsessed. She loved. I can't say obsessed. She loved the young and restless. So I would go in and I'm sitting. I'm waiting her for the sign my thing. And she was like, do you know what Miss Chancellor did today? And I'm, I'm no, I don't because I'm. I'm out working. I'm not really watching the Young and Restless, right? Agenda I got, and don't say that. Don't say, but and then she would go in to see what Victor did is such and such and such and so. She'll go into the Young and Restless, and after about twenty minutes, I knew I was like, well, Miss uh, Miss Sarah, I got this paper here signed. She'll talk all over. She would not acknowledge it. She'll talk all over. She said, uh huh, but listen, let me. This is my part. So she would sit there and haze me. I would stay there always for about 50. Then I try to get up the leash. She asked me a question or bring me some water. And so I was like, okay, okay, okay. So after I would leave and I would come, I would come back. I would come back. I would come back. So at some point, probably going to her house, maybe the six, seven time. I don't even know. I went in, a, I went to her house. I had my backpack. I went to her house. I didn't even take out my, my, my notepad. I went to her house and I sat down. I knew the drill. So I was like, Miss um, Sarah, what's going on with Young Wrestlers today? Right. And we sit down and and she stopped. She's like, girl, Victor did something, something. And then she said, where, your, where that paper? I said, what paper? She said, that paper you want me to sign? I, and I was like, oh, it's in my bag. Well, you don't want me to sign the paper? Y'all? You ain't got the paper out? How you going to come in here and you ain't prepared? I I Oh, okay. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. That's how they do you. Listen, and I took out that paper. I couldn't even get it fast enough. She hates me the whole time. I was like, I got it. I promise you, I got it. I couldn't find the paper. It was so funny. She hates me the whole time. I gave her the paper. She signed it. Listen, by the end of the day, at least six other people had joined the resident council that Miss Sierra had called. Because you had to earn it. Because I had to earn it. What she wanted to know. I've never lost that. That that I, she wanted to know that she mattered to me more than that paper. Yeah. At the moment when I walked in her house and I and she was convinced that I didn't give a damn about that paper. Right. That's the moment because I didn't. At that point, I wasn't even sweating that paper. I right. was like, she ain't gonna never sign it. At that point, I was like, she ain't gonna sign it. But I love Miss. At that point, I had fallen in love with Miss Sarah. Right. I'm in relationship with her. It don't <laughs> matter. I'm gonna go by her house every day anyway. Like, and so she knew. You know, when I went in there, I know and she wound up. She never missed a meeting. Mm. She was the voice that would make it the community. If she said something, you better be clear. Everybody else was going to roll with it or whatever. I 
if if I am a master organizer and I believe I am, which I'll tell you why I know that I'm a master organizer. I'll give you a little story about that in a few minutes. Did you saved the world. Uh, no, not that. that actually, <laughs> I'm going to tell you how I got my official title, who I got my official title from. All right. But the long story short, to this day, I've never lost. She taught me that I needed to listen. Mm. She taught me that I needed to build relationship. Mm. And she taught me that I needed to always center people and the person, not what I thought my purpose was. That my purpose was the engagement of that person. And at the moment when that person knew that I cared about them more than I cared about that piece of paper, that that would open up an opportunity for us to be a relationship. And I have literally used that. And it has been a successful strategy for me. Not only has it been a successful strategy, it's created a so much more enriching journey for me. So that when I'm talking to folks, it's not transactional. When I'm talking to people, I'm talking to them because I really am. I care about them. Like, do you watch The Young and Restless? Like, you know, you know, I want to know what you watch. Like, what you drinking? Like, it, 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 it helped me literally be able to break through a really understanding that part of the power of organizing is acknowledging the, the humanity of other people and making that connectivity. And if that ain't the purpose, and it's so interesting to me, right? Like when you talk about organizing, we know you can organize for good. You can organize for however we define good. You can organize for some other stuff, right? We got some other folks organizing for some other things. And it is so interesting, the distinction, right? When you organize around people's humanity versus when you organize around fear and those types of things, right? Like, so I really do appreciate that distinction as well. So I want to get to the story of Black Voters Matter. And um, I know a lot of folks are interested in the backstory of kind of like how this came to you, how you assigned your, you and Cliff assigned yourselves um, to this work. And, you know, we are all so incredibly proud of we are, I mean, in Lord Jesus, you didn't, like I said, you saved the world, right? Like literally. Um, so I don't know. I would love to just hear a little bit more about, you know, what brought you to this leg of the journey. Um, so we can also talk a lot about uh, where you're going to go next. So you want to start there? Where okay. Black Voters So Matter? I'm going to give as much as I can. Can you hear me? I can. can you hear me? Yeah, I can. You can hear me? Can you hear me? I know. I think. Oh, Okay, yeah. okay. I know my, my service is a little shaky. Um, so I'm gonna give I'm gonna try to give an abbreviated version of it. Um, I am going to start with the the um how I know I'm a master organizer. Yes, um, yes. I never called myself an organizer. I'm just gonna tell this a quick story. I never called myself an organizer, I an activist, right? I never called myself an activist because I felt like you had to earn it. I felt like communities had to call you that they like. I didn't feel like you could go around and assign yourself that, right? I don't know where I got that from, but that's what I thought. I, I had so much admiration, right? So I was down in, this was after Katrina, and I was down in New Orleans. I was down in New Orleans, and Reverend C.T. Vivian, um, uh, right after Katrina, people may or may not know, I had organized um, a, a people-centered relief effort um, in three states uh, called Saving Our Sales Coalition. And so um, right after that, uh, Reverend Vivian, Reverend C.T. Vivian, who I knew from Selma and we had just sat at his feet so many times, um, listening to him talk about the work, but he 
knew of the work that I had done in New Orleans and Alabama and Mississippi uh, right after uh, Katrina. And so he walked in one day and he said, my sister, if you knew him, you would know my sister. He said, you are an organizer. And he walked up. I was like, I'm done. That's it. That's I it. am an organizer. I am I'm done. Like, right. <laughs> nice. So yeah. So that's how that's, that's, that's when I started. I, I'm like, start telling about, you know, I'm an organizer, right? I'm an organizer. <laughs> CT Vivian, the master organizer said I'm an organizer. So, um, but the uh, Black Voters Matter is a 27 year story. Let me just say that. We started the organization in 2016, but actually Cliff and I, and actually April have been talking about that work. I remember us sitting in, in our office, broke as can be, um, saying, if we just had a million dollars, we were convinced that if we had a million dollars, we could save the world. <laughs> we were like, we are, if we had a million, if we just had one million, we could free all the blacks. All the black people would be free for one million dollars, right? And so, you know, right? And so, and it, and, and, and it was not so much about the money because obviously we didn't have to write money amount, right? It wasn't so much about the money. It was this notion that we had, if we had a million dollars, we could build an organization that could actually break out of the traditional um, political organizations, not be wedded to the Democratic Party or political candidates, but could build independent power for Black people. And so we literally had that conversation over 20 years and different aspects of it we would do. We worked on campaigns from the presidential campaign to running for pu public office. And so there were different parts of our theory that we actually tested throughout the years. And so in 2016, you know, after Trump got elected and then, uh, then both Cliff and I transition from our jobs. Both of us were working. I think he was working in philanthropy as well. Um, and we, you know, what we decided, we actually created an organization before we left our job. You know, part of what we said was a couple of things that part of the problem we felt was there was a gross underinvestment, you know, in black communities that, and particularly in the South, I'm looking at all these black folk in the South. I was like, y'all trying to say we can't win in the South? Like, I don't what you talking about. Right, well, let's take it. Look at 2016. You know, 2016 was the absence of investment in- The absence. Right, so that's how that happened, right? right. That's how y'all got what y'all got, right? Because <laughs> you didn't invest. That's why you. That's how you wound up with a Trump, right? right? And so part of it, that's why we started, our first organization, we started was Black Voters Matter Fund. We were very intentional about and 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 Takima, you know this, you know, through my work with Grant Mexis for Southern Progress and, you know, like the last 15 years of my work in philanthropy was trying to convince philanthropy to increase its investment in the South. I mm -hmm. like we were looking at the numbers, you know, it was like, oh, let's do a study. We did five studies. I'm like, how many studies you need? Like, right. You know, and so the the you know, to try to create and make the argument, you know, but it was really funny. Um that over and over again, it's almost like there was this, you know, the South was considered this, this red place that was, like, you know, and so, you know, it was hard to, so I, we were like, well, we gonna, we can, we ain't finna wait on them. We just create a vehicle and go get the money. We go get the money and we give it to our people. And so part of what we, what, so what we did is we started Black Voters Matter Fund with the explicit purpose that it would be a fund that we would demonstrate since philanthropy couldn't get itself together. What we would do 
is literally create the model of being able to show. Don't tell me what you can't do. We're just going to show you. We're going to go get resources. We're going to redistribute the resources. It can be $10. This is going to be the most powerful $10 investment you ever saw. And so there were certain things that we did we wanted to do different. So the impetus of even starting it was this whole notion that part of when you see political resources is always attached to either political candidate or a party. And a candidate and a party have a particular uh, agenda and they, it can align with the community, but not necessarily it's always going to be in alignment with community. We wanted to create a vehicle that we right. can actually get invest in communities and campaigns as they saw fit around power that was not attached to a political party or a candidate, but just attached to them wanting to gain power. And right. so that's why we created it. And there were a number of things that from the bat that we knew we had to do. Like when I talk about kind of listening, you know, our first big race, um, our first race was in America's Georgia. And both Cliff and I had looked at the numbers. And here we have this this black community that we're looking at a Republican that represented them. And we were like and it was it was, it was a Republican that was an, a friendly Republican. And we we were like, why, why does this Republican hold this seat? And we went and we were talking to folks. And they would tell us, oh, he used to be the principal at a school and his folks used to whatever. Girl, and then one day it don't take much over and over and over again. They would tell us these stories. And one day we're sitting and I was like, and they were like, well, he used to. I said, listen, unless he is Jesus, he can't <laughs> have it. It don't make like why. Why does he have this seat? Um, we don't like do y'all want the seat? Y'all can take this seat. And so we invested and this is no lie. We invested less than two thousand dollars. Cliff went down, helped them to organize. And what happened? Voila, flip we won the seat. Not only did we flip the seat, but that seat in Georgia helped Georgia, the Republicans from having a supermajority to a majority. Right. right? So not only did it um, impact representation for that area, but it impacted how much power, wielding power, the Republicans had statewide. And so that taught us a valuable lesson that is like having ripe apples that you're letting fall to the ground and rot, that there were all kinds of opportunities to win right. elections, but people were not, they weren't investing in our communities. And so that we would change the dynamic in that paradigm by centering and, 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 and investing in communities. And so a number of things, you know, we did, um, you know, we decided that we would focus on a strategy that was not just based on urban areas. That part of the challenge is that there was always this strategy that you're going to extract all of the votes out of urban, um, um, of the urban areas, and you weren't going to work anywhere else. Right. Well, I don't know if y'all remember on election night in Georgia when everybody was holding their breath. They were like, "Okay, they had tapped out in Atlanta." And they were like, "Uh, you know, okay, is the DeKalb County and some of those um, count smaller counties start coming up?" And it was like, well, this is a Republican county, but there were black voters that came out. What we knew is that even there was this strategy, it seemed like that the Democrats had that if they couldn't win the, the county, they would abdicate. It was the same thing in the South. And they didn't think right. they could win the South. They wouldn't invest. Right. When the truth of the matter is, whether it was a Republican county or not, we would invest in the county, in the black vote in that county. It offset the white it vote and up. the Republican vote in that county. Right. right. And so and it, run gave the the it was, it would At, run up the black vote. Right. Right. I'm it's sorry. No, right. my, my bad. We have a little bit of delay. I'm just acknowledging. So I'll, I'll try not to. 
I'm getting into it with you. <laughs> so I don't want to take you off course. But what I'm hearing you say is like targeting these rural districts, run up the vote, especially in statewide elections, right? Every vote matters. It's not, we're not voting every by vote. county. Every vote matters. No. Every vote matters. And so, you know, and so that was part of the strategy that we would have a strategy that would focus on rural communities and where black people were that we believe that black folks matter everywhere. So black people were. And so in many of those areas, you know, we would we would work. And when folks saw us this year, they were like, oh, y'all win the presidential election. No, 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 no. Many of those communities, we've been with that. We've been riding with them in local elections. We've been supporting school board races and small ward races. And part of organizing the infrastructure is actually supporting in local communities. And so what we knew we were going to do in our model, and we, I mean, it's, I, I won't go on and on about it, but with our model was that we would always invest in community organizations that had credibility in the community. And so in this last election cycle, we were able to um, invest $7 million in over 700 organizations throughout um, our area. For some reason, philanthropy ain't figured out how to do that yet, but that's all good. Um, um, and that's for Black-led, th th these are Black-led grassroots groups. Um, and we have had a remarkable out, um, outcome with them around accountability and credibility. You know, And so, and I'm saying that because there's all of these, even our approach to how we fund I'll just share two quick things, how we show up differently. The first thing we did is for six months, Cliff and I just listened. We we got we got in a rental car, we did our advance work. We literally went around six um, states, seven states, and just would listen to people. And we went everywhere. We went in all kinds of woods and would listen to people so we could shape our model, that it wasn't about what we thought, it was about what people told us they needed. But the second thing is that and this was really an effective strategy early on, and I think philanthropy can learn from this, is that we would, where we would go, we would ask information about, we always would do the research on the history of right. a community because we wanted to know what had happened there and, and have some history of the black community of the shaping of that. But we would always find out what organizations that the community, the communities actually re respected. And when we would find and talk to those organizations and see that there was some kind of alignment or interest to work to get together, even if they didn't even want to go forward, we would give a thousand dollar mini grant. Mm. And so at first, and we would give the mini grant, they were like, what we got to do for this? We like nothing. You've already done it. We're making an investment in you because of the work that the community says you've already done. And right. I was like, yeah, yeah, we know, but, but what y'all need us to do? Nothing. Like, like, we don't need you to prove to us. We wanted to shift this dynamic that philanthropy has that you got to prove to me the right. social worthy. You got to perform. You got to perform. We shifted that dynamic because both of us had worked in philanthropy. We had felt that before. So we literally made the investment. We showed our cards first and right. showed that we were willing to make investment. No hands attached. You ain't even got to call us no more. Take here's a thousand dollars for the work that you've already done. We want to say thank you for looking for our community and we're grateful for you. That's Love. it, right? And part of what would happen in that circumstance is shifted the dynamic, it shifted the power dynamic in which communities have to be performative or have to prove what, in fact, it actually created an environment of more accountability. It would create an environment that we would actually, we send, I remember some of the organizations. We would literally send out a grant application for them to apply for the grant. They was like, y'all know y'all already gave us some money. We were like the thousand dollars. We was like, we told y'all that don't count. Right. We're like, we're, we're asking you to do this event. 
apply for another grant. That ain't got nothing to do. Take the thousand dollars and and pay your light bill. Like we good. And so that's what Miss Sarah taught you. That's what Miss Sarah taught you, right? Full circle. That's That's what Miss Sarah taught you. Full circle. Full circle. And so showing that investment shifted the dynamic. And then we also, I think in our work, the other thing that we did, I do think the distinction is that we literally, when we would talk to people, we wouldn't go in with an agenda of what we had. I remember us being in Florida and we were in Pensacola, Florida, and it was, a, it was during the governor's race two years ago in 2018. And everybody, everywhere we had been in Florida, we had been working in Florida, people were excited about the governor's race. And we had been invited to be speakers at this big event um, up that, and it was around the governor's race. And so we get in the race, we get there and Cliff and I are talking room packed and we're talking about the governor's race. And all of a sudden somebody in the back says, yeah, just like they did, they're going to do what they want to do. Just like they did by that school board. We keep talking and somebody else was like, mm-hmm, that school board. And so after a while we stopped, we was like, hold up. What is somebody tell us about what's what what are y'all talking about when when the school board and it was kind of funny because the room was kind of quiet like oh Lord we ain't supposed to go off broke script <laughs> and they told me about the school board race it was actually uh, remarkable it was down in Pensacola that there was a school board race they never should have agreed to this but this is what happened in the seventies in the seventies they made an agreement to keep from getting sued that one of the seats on the school board would always be a minority seat. Right, that that would be basically be the black seat. Now, right. if they had agreed to that, they actually would have had the numbers. Now, they should have at least two seats, but it was um, a consent decree that they made an agreement that they would always have this one seat. Well, the person who was in that seat um, retired, and so the governors um, of the state uh, uh, appointed a white woman saying she was a minority, and so the black community had no representative on the school board, and it kill their spirit. I can't even tell you how upset, like they almost couldn't even talk about it. And so we were in the meeting with them and we were like, and it was like, yeah, how they did that. But, but, but that's all right. We going to win this governor's race. And Cliff and I stopped. It was like, wait, 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 that's y'all see. They was like, well, yeah, but they got, we were like, no, 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 no. That's your seat. Do you want your seat? And I was like, yeah, we want it, but we don't, whatever. We were like, no, we'll support that. We're, we're not, we ain't come to support what we want to support in right. that seat. And right. so we shifted. So instead of our operation there being about the governor's race, the operation wound up being about that school board seat. And the wonderful thing to Kima that happened is not only did they win that school board seat, but they had one of the highest rates in the panhandle that they had ever had to participate in the the gubernatorial election because it was a local interest that drove them because we met them at the point of what they cared about and they determined that was important not about what we cared about and so that has been our strategy as we've gone through communities we say to them what it is that you want to see and then we actually push them around visioning that we know that right now we're engaged in this process to reduce the harm, but we're also pushing you to radically reimagine your community. What is that you want to see? And then we get, sometimes we just need permission. Every once in a while, we just need somebody to give us permission. Be like, girl, you better go get your stuff. That's your power. <laughs> you, know, stuff. you better go get your stuff. And after a while, you know, your folks will be like, I will never forget that meeting. Because at first they were like, down. It was like, that's y'all seat. And all of a sudden, a couple of them was like, no, nah, that's y'all seat. Then someone was like, yeah, that's our seat. We're like, you better go get your seat, right? <laughs> and so we started feeling it. 
And they start organizing. So we would see them. They was like, we going to get our seat. That's like, you. that's your seat, right? And so there's something about sometimes oppression and loss and nobody standing with us will yeah. beat us so down that we stop to believe. Um, a last story I'll share that's coming up was in Terrell County in um, <laughs> in in um in South Georgia. We went down there, Terrell County. It was a um it was so bad. It was like a Birmingham during the Civil Rights Movement. But when we went down there, one of the ministers we worked with. We were trying to ask him, you know, if he wanted grant. He's like, nope. He was actually, he's the head of the NWC. <laughs> he said, all I want is bullhorn. And we was like, okay, but if you want, uh, you want us to give a grant? Nope. I don't want a grant. I told you what I want. All I want is a bullhorn. And so we like, okay. So we bought him a bullhorn. Joe Clark. Yeah. We bullhorn. He went and literally shut down the whole downtown area the next day. We was like, well, hell, if we knew you was going to um, uh, buy a bullhorn to shut it down, what would have happened if we had given you some speakers? Right. <laughs> and literally after that time, he has been amazing. We wound up what I realized in that moment, he wanted to know, could we show up as he said he needed? Right. 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 And so us showing up with a bullhorn, because we could have wrote him a check. He's like, nope, I want a bullhorn. Like to get him uh, show up in the way that he needed. He knew that we really cared about what it was that he wanted. Right. And so it created a space. And so I think all of those are lessons around organizers, like being in tune enough with your people. That is not about what you want. It's about what they want. And like part of as a good organizer is to help push through the oppression to help push through this this notion this idea of what they can't do and what they can't have and to help them to believe again to believe in their own agency for them to believe in their own power where they can actually get clarity about what they what their true heart desires are that's what an organizer's job is or at least that's my perspective of it well, we know you were organizer because CT Vizivian said. CT Vizivian said I'm an organizer. <laughs> so I'm like, I am a master organizer. I'm a master organizer. <laughs> so I have two more questions to ask you, um, and it's a little bit of a different topic, but I want to talk about you. I want to talk about the going back to the journey of Latasha Brown and where you're going next. We know that you are. Um, in the process of recovering from a very long campaign, but talk about what you're learning about taking care of yourself, about rest, restoration and leadership. Um, Cause I also think that's really, really important for organizers or folks particularly, you know, I'm looking at the people in this list, right? Like who are out there doing this work and on the front line, what are you learning about what it takes to support you in doing the work? You know, I was um, having a conversation last night with my cousin who um, who is spending time with me right now in, in this process. And this has just come, come up for me when you just asked me this question. And we were, it was right after dinner, we were sitting having a glass of wine and we were talking about a story and she just said something real simple. It's so simple. It's like, I don't know, but it struck my spirit. She said, Tasha, you matter. That's uh -huh. all. And she said it again. No, no, no. I need you to understand. You matter. Um, and I and I'm I'm saying that because I do think in this work, and particularly I think within a Judeo-Christian context, right? We're constantly taught and trained 
that a, an example of, of, of humility is saying that that is is to show that you're willing to sacrifice, that you're willing to be the martyr, that part of um of 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 making yourself kind of be the sacrificial lay. And I think I think we're 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 there's some elements of that that we're taught um in, in different religious traditions. I also think as a woman, we're constantly taught that our sole purpose is to serve the man who the head of the household um and to procreate and have these babies and raise them and that and then after we do that whatever's left over then we can do right and so and then i also think there's a a warped kind of um culture within um within the movement movement culture yes, that says definitely. that you have to be the hardest worker you have to be you have to tie yourself out um and the truth of the matter is just being honest and bringing my full self all of those things have impacted me and all of those things I've absorbed those beliefs. And so I am literally right at this precipice. I waited till I got 50 that, that I'm actually learning pieces of how to take care of myself. It was interesting last night when my cousin said, you matter the first time I was getting ready to cut her off. And then I had to sit and examine if you, if she had said, "Oh, they matter," I would be like, "You know that? I know that's right. I, that wasn't even a that wouldn't even have been a, a delay in it, right?" And so I'm saying that because I think that part of just absorbing this notion of how important we are um, is is actually a, a, a new there elements. There's different deeper, deeper elements of that that I am discovering. Uh -huh. You know, I am. Um, Part of what is kind of next for me as I go forward, what I do realize too is, you know, uh, I'm not doing the world no good if I'm not healthy. That right. That's right. Yeah, that and I have, I have run into people in the social justice sector and in the social justice movement that are, that because they've not taken care of themselves, because they've not, um, they are, de they are dealing with stress. And because of, they've allowed pressure to shape them, they just damn mean. <laughs> like I'm just like just just mean. And um, and the very thing of which they are fighting against, they have become. Yeah, you know. And so I don't want to be that. And so if that's the case, then I have to take time to be an expression of love, not only to the world but to myself. Absolutely. So I started doing little things during COVID-19 that make me so happy <laughs> that were part of my self-help piece. You know, one thing, I never liked coffee. Like, never. Not like, I, I didn't dislike coffee, but I never was like a big person about coffee, right? Other than, but I remember this experience. I told you I'm a grandma's baby. Um, when my grandmother would drink coffee and she would only have coffee every once in a while because she had diabetes, what she called sugar. She had sugar and she would um, make coffee and she would always have a piece of light bread, what she called light bread, which was um, a white bread. She would she would dip it in it and eat it. But what was interesting, she would always say, Ma, come. She, she would call me Ma. She's like, Ma, come on, drink some coffee with me. And I would sit on the edge of the chair because my grandma was really heavy set. Uh, I would sit on the edge of the chair and she would let me sip the coffee like two times. And I knew, and you know, children can't have coffee, at least in my family. Children, you know, children can't have coffee because of caffeine. 
And I all day I would be looking at my cousins like, mm-hmm, you ain't had no coffee. Like mama, <laughs> you no coffee, right? And it was literally that moment that I felt special, right? It was one of those moments I felt special. So I remember that feeling, but I, I just didn't have a habit for coffee. And so in, in COVID-19, like everybody else, and I never bought liquor. I've never been a drinker. I never bought liquor. Matter of fact, up until all throughout college, whatever, I never drank anything. Well, COVID, well. <laughs> right. <laughs> then come along COVID. So yeah. For some reason, I decide I am going to go and I'm going to ball out. So I go to the liquor store, buy $300 worth of liquor, which was a big deal for me. Right, <laughs> That was a big deal for me. So then I started making me a collection of liquor. I get me an app and start trying to uh, figure out how to make drinks. And then I go and buy me one of those little Keurig machines. But but it wasn't Keurig. It was like an off-brand. It's like a Hamilton Beach or something. And, and you can have... Yeah. One and I actually like that better than cured, y'all. I really do. Um, and you could do one single cup or either a big pot, but you could I could just do this one single cup. It is the and it makes this sound. I don't know, I don't know what it is, y'all. But when I tell you, I go push my little butt and the coffee comes down. I, I'm grown. I like every I like it is created, and it's so funny because I am a ritual person. I think that's I to Kim, I guess that's the Scorpio in me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like these little rituals that really got no meaning for nothing. But to me, it was everything. So I would get down and I would go. I know this sounds weird, but and I, maybe it doesn't sound weird. Making that coffee for myself was like this, like nobody could. It wasn't for nobody else. Right. That was my one cup for me. I wasn't making the pot. I was making one cup for me. And you can't disturb me during that time. I am making my coffee mm-hmm. and I'm listening to it and I'm fully present in that moment for me. Right. Like that, like it's interesting. And as weird as that sound, that became like one of those <laughs> self-care kind of moments that I that I carved out for myself. And then I started making these drinks and I was like, oh, I got to stop this because I'm going to mess around and be an alcoholic if I if I if I <laughs> <laughs> when this is over we're gonna have some cocktails listen i started doing the cocktail stuff and then the other thing is i started taking time to do um you know uh, prior to that i uh, when i was when i do tv interviews you know they pick you up they take you to the studio i would go to studios and they have a makeup artist and they put on makeup and i've never been a person to wear makeup and so um, they would always put up makeup. So I didn't ever know how to put up makeup. But when COVID-19 happened, my studio is my home and I don't have a makeup artist. So then I had to learn makeup. So playing in makeup, listen, y'all, I like, I, that is the best thing. Jessica Norwood. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> I know I can look at the Jessica chat. Been trying to tell me, Jessica Norwood has been trying to tell me to get my life with makeup for years. And I just ain't believe you, Jessica. I didn't believe you. The Sephora um, ministry. The Sephora listen, having makeup and being able to try colors and sit in the mirror. Um, and this is like, I mean, I started that because I was trying to learn how to put up makeup. So I, before I went on like MSNBC or, you know, um, on the air, but then I started enjoying it and then it just became like this fun, but it's also this thing that I would do for me. So I go and sit in front of my vanity and I put up on my makeup. And so all of those little actions of just taking care of me actually kind of fostered this um, kind of this renewed sense of this whole notion of me mattering. And so 
in that, you know, other things that I did that I think kind of broke through to me too as well is, you know, I would, no matter where I would go, for a long time, people didn't know. And part of how I paid for college was through singing with a band. I've always been a singer and I always sang with the band, but I compartmentalized myself. So I was Latasha Brown, the activist organizer, right? The institution builder. And then I was a singer at night. You know, I'm, I'm Latasha Love, right? right? Most people did not know I separated those worlds, right? Um, and at, as I've gotten older, I'm like, it's all of me. I'm going to bring all of me. Right. And so literally I will be in. It is a running joke at Harvard. Like literally I will be in the middle of a board meeting and I'll start singing if I feel like it. If the answer is to say singing, girl, I'll be up in there singing. We shall overcome if I feel like it. Right. I will get on the MSNBC and sing. I would like if the spirit, feel, if the spirit hit it, I'm going to sing it. This is who I am. Right. And so and it's not to even be performative. It's like this was spirit say to do. I'm going to do it. Right. Um, this is what I feel. This is what I feel authentically for me in this moment. And it was so liberating. And I remember some students walked up to me. Um, um, I, I remember I was I was teaching a class and some students walked up to me and I, this student walked up to me in the back and she said, I want you to teach me how to be free. I said, I'm, I said, what? She said, you so free. Wow. I was like, what do you mean? She, she said it was really funny. She said, like, you so black and they like you. I said, that's why they like me, because I don't care whether they like me. <laughs> At the point in which you just be you, people will either like you or not. And those that like you will gravitate to you because you are being in your authentic self. And so for me, finding being authentic um, was liberating for me. It was part of my survival. Son, I am not good at being somebody else. I ain't even really good at being on script. On, wow. I tried. <laughs> well, I'm gonna break out the box every time. I'm just, I just, I'm not built that way, right? But if if you leave me alone, tell me what you need, and let me be free. I promise you, right? I'll get it done, right? Just, 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 just let me be. And so instead of for a number of years, I was waiting for permission. Uh -huh. For someone to let me be free. And so the beauty of being a grown woman, right? The beauty of being a grown woman is really, I want to say a grown a woman, but I'm going to say a grown woman <laughs> is getting to the place in which I accept me. And so I am, I'm saying this in a way that I'm so in love with me right now. I like me. Like I actually like me. <laughs> <laughs> like and like I like me I like who I am I know my flaws I know I even even my imperfections and I even get on my own nerves sometimes right <laughs> but to be in this space that say just to say that I like me because there's some people that would easily say oh yeah I love me but can you say you like me mm. right that you like yourself I have gotten to the place that I like who I am and 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 being in that space where I like me has given me so much liberation. And I know that sound, whatever, but I promise you that has been the most liberating thing to happen to me to get to the place that I can actually get on here. It was like, I like me. Latasha though, it gets, it comes full circle, right? Like I'm listening to the story and I'm listening to you talking about being 22 
and being shamed and having to go tell your grandmother, the same grandmother who gave you the coffee, right? And and learning that stepping into your power authentically, um, you know, and, and engaging other people right where they are brings you full circle in yourself. It does. To know your power and to love and like you, to know and taste freedom because freedom is to become more of ourselves. Absolutely. You know? Yes. And to see other people, what I realized, and I think this is part, this goes back to organizing, you know, part of the reason around organizing around power and what we, you know, and love, what that does is it's the same theory. It's the same reason why we scream when we see Michael Jordan jump in the air or Kobe Bryant um, um, fly or LeBron James bust a move. It's the same reason why we watch the Olympics and we're seeing somebody winning and we're not even trying and we jumping up like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, in the midst of all of this other kind of foolishness, we like to see people operate in their gift. And we really do in their highest. We do. There's something about that that gives us permission. Like it gives us permission of what is a possibility and potential in ourselves. And so, you know, part of, you know, organizing part of be, what I realized is the more that I learned to accept and like and love me, the more I was actually able to be influential with other people liking and loving. It's almost like if others could be like, well, if if she can like and love herself and um, then maybe I can do that. Like literally being a demonstration of love. But oftentimes I think it's important. We have to be a demonstration of of how we love ourselves. That sometimes that's the most powerful piece. I'm, I'm real. I'm saying about Jessica Norwood, but I'm for real. And like Jessica, um, Je Jessica, we tell the story a couple of years ago. We had gone to a concert, and Jessica left her makeup bag um, at this concert, and <laughs> we had to go back to get it. <laughs> Not only did we had to go back to get it, but Jessica was about to have a heart attack. Jessica was like, "I need my makeup bag. I just got my makeup how I wanted it. I just, I just, she, Lord, like I had to, like I thought I was gonna have to give her therapy in the car. I was like, it's okay, baby. It's okay. It's okay. You know, the power though in it." was that, you know, I remember being reflective and that's why that story stands with me. The power of it is this was something that was important to her. It didn't matter if it wasn't important to nobody. You did, you had a straight meltdown. It didn't matter about anything. It was something for her that right. she enjoyed. And so, and I remember thinking to myself, I don't know what I would have left outside of a cell phone that I would act like that. And even my cell phone is really not just about me. That's about other people getting in touch with me. Half of my phone calls, somebody want me to do something, right? So, but there was some, it was something about that, that even when I put on makeup, Jessica, to this day, um, and I'm enjoying the process, I think about you, sister. Oh, that's so sweet. Well, first of all, let's just say I've already ripped up the paper for the script of the show. So that thank you for that lesson early on. And really towards the end of this, I really have um, one last question for you, which is really where are you going next? And how can the folks listening um, and who are going to experience this podcast be in support of that? Thank you so much. So one um, let, let me just do a shout out. Cause I see some names on here. Um, I do want to shout out to the sisters, you know, there, uh, let me say black women, black women. I so love you. 
right? Uh, black people, the brothers on here, whoever's on here, I'm saying this. I hope y'all feel it through the screens. I love you. I really mean that from my heart. Um, but I do want to do a special shout out for my sisters in philanthropy, many of that I've worked with for years uh, that literally, and you know, I, 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 I mean, I guess I can talk about it now on some level, but you know, we posted kind of the joy and a lot of the work that was happening around the campaign because we knew our people needed to see that, right? What we didn't post is some of the things that we were experiencing. And so the journey as we were doing um, this work, you know, we had to stop staying in Airbnbs because we stayed in a white neighborhood and they set the Airbnb, they set the garbage can on fire to run us out of the neighborhood. Um, we have been, we had the bus, the, the window bust out um in the in the um on the bus in Alabama we pulled up to uh uh um uh, in South Georgia we were pull, pulled up to a gas station and just like on a movie like in the heat of the night the, looking at us our face they said close so we couldn't stop and get gas this is in 2019 2018 2020 right, right? Um, we had death threats. We had so many death threats that we were receiving on our website that we had to hire another social media person just to help clean and go through the website because it was so overwhelming. Um, I can go on and on and on. Um, and then recently after the, the, um, um, the election, you know, we couldn't even stay in our homes and celebrate because of some security threats. We actually had to cliff um, Albright and I, we had to pick up our families. We had to actually leave um, uh, because of some safety issues. I, I'm saying that because that's the ugly part that people don't know. And I'm not saying that for people to feel any kind of way for us. I'm saying that that is the stress. Absolutely. Like, we're talking about moving power. We let, let's not be let's be clear about these are the same folks that you that lynched our people. These are the same folks that had a gallows outside of the Capitol in right. 2021 for the vice president who was supposed to be, who was with right. David, right? You know, right. These, these these are the folks that in Mississippi, right after reconstruction, right? There 300 black folks were elected by newly emancipated Af um, um, Africans and 700, seven of, 70 of them, of the 300 white mob went overnight in a matter of, of over two days, I think the course of two days and killed 70 of them. That same spirit continues to live. And I'm saying that and I'm raising that because I want to just share how extraordinary some of the sisters, including being led by you, Takima, did that I want to just kind of offer is that um, even now I feel like I want to cry. I didn't really realize I still have it. It's funny, this is the first time I'm getting emotional about it. You know, when you in a fight, you can't, when you in war, you can't afford to get emotional. When you in war, you can't cry. When you in war, you got to like, we got to roll. Um, right. My my um, consulting business took a hit. My Cliff's consulting business took a hit. Um, all kinds of things. I caught COVID. The first time I went out, I caught, caught COVID. Uh, I'm, I'm saying that, I promise y'all, I'm not saying this as a pity party or whatever. I'm saying this, that at the end of the day, when people are rooted in this work, we cannot take for granted based on what we see. We don't know what folks are going through behind right. the scenes. And I ain't even told y'all half of it, right? I'm just telling just enough to get the point. Absolutely. But because of that, you know, I was after a long campaign that seemed like it went forever. 
I can't damn sleep in my house, in my bed. Really? Like, you know, like I, I just, I was like, okay, all right. We're going to make it work. Uh, but my sisters uh, reached out and said, we love you and we want to support you. And we think you need a vacation. And I'm like, I don't need no vacation. I want a vacation, but you know, I'm thinking to myself, oh, I got too much work to do. Like, you know, the like it's just, oh, it's just too much. I just don't know. And I was like, but I do need it. Okay, 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 okay. And so as a result, just in a matter of, you know, just just in a matter of minutes, sisters was like, we got it. Matter of fact, you ain't got to think through nothing, you ain't got to plan through nothing. Takima was like, Takima got Jessica on. It was like, we getting ready to get with the other sisters of other black women in philanthropy. And we got you, girl. And um, and and a couple of days later, um, I was able, I wasn't able to come immediately because I had to get my family settled. Um, like I said, because we were dealing with security stuff. And once I came, you know, it took me three days to unwind. I couldn't even unwind. I was so uptight. I couldn't even wind for a number of days. And then by the fourth or fifth day, I started unwinding and I started realizing I was sleeping at night. Mm. Think about that's a big deal. I Black women have a particular kind of way that we have to move through stress and we don't really understand how it's affecting our body. I've literally not been able to sleep. Um, I've been having sleeping problems, major sleeping problems. I know other people have been having it, I think, through COVID-19, but it's like I can't turn my head off. I'm like, I've been having sleeping problems, all kind of issues. And so... I have been sleeping. Mm. I have been, I like I slept every day, every night. And so what I realized, and even in the place, um, the the place that I'm staying at, you know, is it the place I was, it was completely open. Ain't no doors, <laughs> ain't no locks. Matter of fact, I wake up in the morning, be people in the house fixing coffee. I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> um, and sweeping the floors, right? Yet my home, you can, like my home got all kind of locks and security and I didn't feel safe. And so what I will say is I just wanted to I, I wanted to say that for a reason. I wanted to say thank you, black women, for showing up. In many ways, you saved my life. In many ways, you created a space for me to be safe, a space for me to feel honored, a space for me to get up and look out at some blue water every day. Um, and I didn't even have to tell y'all what I wanted. I didn't okay. have to tell you. <laughs> like, like, like it is, that is how I was doing an interview with, with somebody today. I can't remember who it was. And, and they were like, um, they were asking me about, you know, what was the kind of the, 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 what was the one thing I wanted to lift up? And I was like, the one thing I know the rest of the world lifted up black women because they don't work for you. Right. Fine. Like I was like, but there is something that black women have created around sisterhood that the world need to get that. Y'all need to figure that out because we y'all y'all need to figure that thing out because black women, um, when I do, when I get my new hair done, when I get my <laughs> new hair done, my, my, even my man might not say nothing. <laughs> Ain't nobody around me. My child walked by me. My he looked at me like I think I think you look a little different, right? But it is going to be some sister that says, "Girl, I like that hair." If I buy them shoes, 
and I wear them new shoes and I know I'm looking good. There is some black woman that is going to say, girl, you rocking them shoes, baby. Right. If I am, my point is there is something that we have created, y'all, that we have taken, not just lemonade, made lemonade, but we have literally created all the things that is almost like the world, like squashed us, like the right now, the way I'm seeing it is like, like they put us in this walnut, um, like put us like in these walnut shells. I don't know why that's what I see, but that's what I see. Like in these walnut shells and they forced us through racism and sexism and oppression and we were raped and degraded and we were called ugly and we were mistreated. They put us all in this, this walnut shell and we were in that walnut shell and got together and was like, girl, we gonna do this thing. We busting up out this camp. And as a result, black women, we, we healed each other. In that yeah. walnut shell, we affirm each other in that walnut shell. We like spoke and gave life. And, and right now the world is actually experiencing that. But they're not just experiencing that because it's about what we do for them. It is literally rooted as in the first thing that I said, in us. We love us. Yes. Sisters love, like sisters love the sisterhood. And we love the sisterhood. We love the sisterhood. And, and loving the sisterhood and leaning into that gave us agency. It gave us a space to go to feel pretty when nobody else thought we were pretty. Mm -hmm. It gave us a space to go and feel powerful when other people wanted to not make us feel powerful. You know, and I ain't gonna, and listen, the brothers, I, listen, cause I love the bros. Let me be real clear. <laughs> I really like the men folk. I like the men people. <laughs> I like them. <laughs> I like them, right? <laughs> but there is something about the way that sisterhood keeps us surviving and mindful. I was telling somewhere today, I can't even, you know, when I was on a campaign, there were, when we were campaigning, there were black women that would just call me and say, sister, have you drank some water today? Literally. There ain't nobody else. There was a black woman that called me to ask me if I drank some water. There were sisters that would call me and say, how you feeling? right? Or call to pray with me. And so I just say that, that I think that it's not even just, I think we're going to teach the world. Yes. You know, my grandmother would say the last will be first and the first will be last. Mm -hmm. You know, I do believe that black women have an offering that's not just about the shaping the political landscape in this country, but I believe that black women are going to shift you know, standing along also in our brother with our brothers and community, because we look in our community very different. You know, um, we don't look at our our fight as, oh, this is just a woman fight and a man fight. No, we are, this is a community fight. But sisters stand in that space, uh -huh. um, stand in a space that I do believe that we're going to transform. I think we're going to transform the universe. I'm so serious. I think we about to re realign some stars up there. That's some planets that we about to put in some in the orbit. We touch and agree on that one because you know right. I, I believe in the sisterhood. I believe this this chat is full of the sisterhood. So <laughs> um, I just want to say the, um, the names of many of the sisters on here who supported um, Latasha's respite and just say thank you to you, um, Donna Marie, Katrina, Jahan, Michelle. I want to make sure I didn't miss anybody else, but thank you so much. And I tell you all the time, it was the easiest money I've ever raised. Um, it was a couple of text messages. And when you love black people, they love you. 
And I hope that you are feeling that Amen. Um, and are full of that, Latasha. It is the least that we can do for what you have done, not only for Black folks, but for this country. Um, and so we really deeply love you. I am going to close out the show because I'm also very much invested in your rest, in your good night's sleep, in this glass of wine I'm sure you have waiting for you. So with every show, we close out with three simple questions. And then there is okay. a bit of a request that we round this out with a little Latasha love. Okay. So that came from Havana. So just so you know. Okay. <laughs> but three simple rapid fire questions. And it's just been fun okay. to see how different people answer these um, and really to leave us with some inspiration. So the first is, what is justice? Oh, I think justice is the absence of hate um, and for the love of humanity, I think justice is a demonstration of the highest love for humanity. Mm. What is freedom? Mm. Freedom is, oh, that's a good one. Mm. Hmm. Freedom is liberation. Um, how would I say freedom? Mm when one is able to be their whole and complete self, when one is liberated to be the full expression of themselves without fear of hurt or harm. Um, and I would even say rejection. I don't know why that's coming up, but that's what came up. I love that though. I love that. Cause so many of us don't lead into freedom because we fear rejection. Um, all right, the last one. So what is the one thing? <laughs> What's the one thing you can't live without? Prince. That is true. You love some prince. Anybody <laughs> knows Brown, <laughs> you would know I can't deal without Prince. Like you all know, I'm still like I like I almost had to go to some therapy when he died. Like for real, for real. I am the biggest Prince fan in the whole wide world. Um. You and Monique, though, are going to have to fight. You no, know, Monique, I know. I was like, Monique, like, you know, I don't know. Monique is the only one that gave me a little run for my money. But but me and Monique, we, you know. Y'all are definitely twins in that, the love of that man. So. No, it's the love of that money. I mean, love, love of that man, which actually lends to, to its longer self. I just don't, I literally could not live without music. I literally couldn't. I, I just couldn't. It's, it's just, it. I couldn't. Well, that's the most beautiful way for us to close this out. So folks have requested that you sing us to the end. Oh, see here how y'all do. So I will, this is what's, um, let me see on my spirit. This is the message. Well, the first thing I did right was the day I started to fight. Keep your eyes on the prize and hold on, hold on. Y'all, we just got to keep our eyes on the prize. I am Takima. Thank you for having me. Um, I ain't got no makeup. I ain't comb my hair. I got my little <laughs> um, But this is fun. I see all the sisters, the brothers and sisters that are on here. Thank you. Thank you, Bomani. You, Bomani. Bo, bo, Bomani. Bomani. Bo, I'm about to tell them myself, you better see how many glasses of wine. Um, uh, <laughs> but I just want to say thank you so much. Thank you all for um, this was collective. Yes, we were out front and we did work, but this really was um, a product of black folks 
collectively leaning into our power. Like we collectively lean into this. And so this is our victory. So I, you know, I want to push it back on you all too. Thank you. Thank you. And Takima, thank you for being you. And I love your platform. So thank you for having me on here. Awesome. Thanks everybody for joining us. Thank you so much, Latasha. You know, I love you to infinity and beyond. And thank you all for joining this conversation. We're going to be doing these every other week and doing them live with some of the most amazing folks who are leading work. The next time we'll be together um, will be just next week when we're going to be joined by Flozell Daniels, who is um, leading a lot of really, really great work in New Orleans um, as we bring Usher in a new uh, district attorney there. So uh, Latasha, yeah, we're celebrating that journey, that victory in, in New Orleans with the new progressive DA and you know Flozell gonna bring um, Absolutely, yay. so that is great. See y'all later. Make sure that y'all follow me. Now I can have my glass of wine that I've been trying to have, but all um, of that. Because I got with some cool stuff is popping up soon, but in a couple of weeks there'll be some pretty cool announcements made. Make sure we share with everyone. Love you, sister, and we'll talk to you later. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for joining me today. Wherever you are in the world, I want to hear from you. So stop what you're doing right now. No, really, right now, and follow me on social media: Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Converge for Change. Now, after you follow me, drop me a line in the comments and let me know what you thought about this show. After that, make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're growing our tribe of social justice warriors, and we want you with us every step of the way. Thanks.